You're listening to Dr. Ward Bond's Life-Changing Wellness, the fastest-growing natural health, nutrition, and inspiration podcast in the nation. Uplifting stories, powerful messages, and triumph over adversity, the experience of entertainment and encouragement is about to begin. And now your host, Dr. Ward Bond. I'm Dr. Ward Bond, and I welcome you to Life-Changing Wellness. Today's episode is brought to you by Prevagen, America's number one brain health supplement. Go to Prevagen.com to learn more about improving your memory. Now, before we begin, please head over to iTunes after the interview with my guest today. Rate and review the show for me, and I thank you ahead of time for making our show great. Well, my guest today is Johanna Garten. She's a mother, a writer, and a cross-country coach, and we are discussing today her brand new book, Edge of the Map, The Mountain Life of Christine Boscoff. It is a riveting, thought-provoking story full of history, a tragic love story, but full of life, joy, and success, but it's also one of mystery, and it's all true. And in writing Edge of the Map, Johanna interviewed more than 75 friends and family of Christine Boscoff, her late husband, Keith Boscoff, and Charlie Fowler. And in a remarkable life, tragically cut short, Christine Boscoff was at the top of the high altitude world. And at the time, she was the only living woman to summit six of the 8,000 meter peaks, one being Mount Everest, charismatic, principled, and humble. Christine Boscoff was also a deeply loved role model to her climbing partners and the Sherpa community. Well, today, author Johanna Garten is here to share her story, a story I found deeply moving on so many levels. So let's welcome our esteemed guest, author Johanna Garten. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I am going to say, and I can honestly sincerely and generally say that I read the book from cover to cover. And um, so I want to just kick this off with you, Johanna. And by the way, my wife's grandmother's name mm-hmm. was Johanna. So that is a name I am familiar with. So it's a great name. <laughs> Thank but, you. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So, well, let me ask you this. What attracted you to write Christine Boscoff's story? Oh my gosh. Well, there is a backstory indeed. And if you'd like, I can just dive into that because oh, that often, absolutely. Yes, yeah, please do. Okay. I mean, that often is the more interesting part I find when you finish a book to kind of dive in and figure out like, what was it that compelled the author to write this book? So, uh, so I received a call from my mother who is a journalist in December of 2006. I was living out in Colorado and she called and said she had read a little article in our local hometown newspaper, I'm from Appleton, Wisconsin, that described the disappearance of a woman named Christine Boscoff and her partner, Charlie Fowler. They were mountaineers and they had gone to a remote part of Western Sichuan province in China and had disappeared. And there was this crazy search and rescue operation to try to find them. And she asked if I had heard of Christine and I had not. And she kind of launched into a big discussion about Christine's life and her legacy. She had climbed more 8,000 meter peaks than any other American woman. And my mom's not a climber. And I stopped her in the course of this phone call and said, why are you so interested in this woman? And she said, because you went to high school together. Wow. Which took my breath away uh, that I had not heard of Christine Boscoff and all of her accomplishments. And by the time my mom had really 
dug in and learned about Chris's life. Uh, she and her partner, Charlie, were found to have been killed in an avalanche. And my mom decided this was a story that was worth telling in book form. So my mom set out to write this book, worked on it for about 10 years. And in that time, she was diagnosed with Parkinson's. So after about 10 years of working on the book in bits and pieces, she decided she couldn't continue. And at that point, I had just published my first book and I was looking for a second project. And so I offered to help her finish the book, which I did. And I'm happy to report that it was published in April. You know, it was funny because I read the whole book. And when I say I read the whole book, I read all the way to the very end where you explained the story in which your mother had done all of this research. And then, you know, of course, she ended with uh, with Parkinson's disease. And then you started going through all of the material that she collected. And you have written a fantastic book. Seriously. And and we're, we're going to get into that. So ladies and gentlemen, I want you to realize that this book isn't just the life of Christine Boscoff and the life of others. This is a book in which you read and you can almost, I can, I guess I can really guarantee you this. You can see within yourself things that you need, you may need to realize that life needs to be lived. So let me ask you this one, Johanna, because in in the beginning of the book, uh, not the very beginning, but towards the top of the book, I would say, Christine broke into a very male-dominated sport, and but she seemed to gain respect very quickly. Is that what you saw as she climbed the ladder, so to speak, in the world of mountain climbing? Yes, she did. I mean, she kind of grew up in these worlds that were dominated by men. She was one of four children. She had three older brothers. So she kind of always grew up around boys. And she went to college and studied aerospace engineering. She got her first job at Lockheed right out of college in the early 90s, leading teams of men. Uh, and then she went on to become a business owner and she owned a guiding company. Again, that's a field that was dominated by men. And then her sport itself, obviously high altitude mountaineering was full of men. So she did get recognized very quickly and gained a certain level of respect, but really tried to stay very much under the radar. She didn't want to be known because she was female She wanted to be known because of her achievements and what she was doing, regardless of her gender. So that was always sort of a a push-pull for her, I think. Yeah, and I I like that because as I was reading it, I really understood what Christine wanted. She wanted to uh, do these accomplishments, make these achievements, but she wanted to do it as a human being, not Mm -hmm. as one as female. And I really wish that people would grasp that full concept today, instead of being the first this, the first that, mm-hmm. just be celebrate someone's achievement by being that they that that person as a whole, as a human, did something amazing. Doesn't matter if they're a man or a woman, black, white. It doesn't matter. It's just that that person did something awesome, and I and I can understand what Christine was thinking, and I think that was a very positive driving force for her, which helped her to gain that respect. Yes, I think so. I think it ended up resulting in her not paying attention to all of the noise outside of her and what she was doing. There was a lot of noise and a lot of people kind of focusing on that. And she was very 
adept at staying true to this passion that she had in her life, which was to live in these gorgeous mountains all over the world. Yeah, you know, you have a quote in your book by Muhammad Ali Jinnah, and he wrote, there are two powers in the world. One is the sword and the other is the pen, but there's a third power stronger than both, that of woman. Now, I completely agree with that statement. As a man, there is an underlying insecurity that we carry. For some, it can be outwardly. For others, we can carry it in secret, but either way, it can either propel a man or it can hold him back. Did Christine's story empower you personally? Oh, yes, absolutely. And that was something that was unexpected to me as a journalist. I came into the project thinking I'm going to be very calculated and interview all these people and I'm going to get the story right. And I definitely won't get sucked into the story because that would be kind of an emotional place that I'm not necessarily needing to go as a journalist. But very quickly, I fell into this world and the characters in the world of mountaineering are just fascinating. And so it was a deeply humbling experience to retrace her life and her steps. And it helped me recognize many things about my own life and really transformed, I think, where I'm going in the future as well. Yeah, I agree with that because uh, as I was reading your book, um, it it kind of put me on a an emotional roller coaster. Um, there were there's areas of the book that were like, oh wow, did not see that coming, and mm-hmm. um, and and I think the book can cause a lot of people to reflect upon themselves. So, ladies and gentlemen, as you're listening to this, I suggest that everybody read this book. And and for all the parents out there, if you have a daughter, you need to buy this book, mm-hmm. and you need to have your daughter read this book because. Christine is is an amazing role model in, in so many ways, and uh, don't you agree with that uh, oh, assessment? Absolutely. That I think every every little girl should read this book. Yes, absolutely. She didn't strive to be that role model, but she just was. She just yes. was. she was humil. She had humility and charisma and passion, and I think that's what we hope all of our girls, and boys for that matter, but especially our girls have in this day and age. So it's a great yeah. great book for, for and girls, I, and it's readable oh, and it's accessible. Well, we're going to get into that passion in a moment because I have a very important question on that end, but tell us about Christine's relationship with her husband, Keith. Yes, I'd be happy to. So she met her husband, Keith, in Atlanta. As I mentioned, she got her first job out of college at Lockheed Martin, and she was kind of going about her days and nights in this kind of nine to five grind and was looking looking outside herself for something that would inspire her a little bit more than her job. And she went to uh, a talk on mountaineering, and the guy giving the talk was a guy named Keith Boscoff. And she immediately was drawn to the sport and to Keith. The two of them fell in love and they traveled all over the world uh, climbing. So he was essentially her first teacher. He was probably 15 years older than her. And the two of them went on to purchase Mountain Madness, which was the mountain guiding company that had been owned by Scott Fisher, who some of your listeners may remember through the lens of the book Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, which was about a disaster on Mount Everest in 1996. Yes. So... Keith and Chris bought this mountain guiding company. They moved to Seattle and uh, continued in this world for many years. Yeah. And as I was reading the story 
and really getting inside. Um, I don't know if I could say I was getting inside the heads of the characters, but I was getting through the lens of what they could see. And, and, and it was your writing style that really brings forth the reader to see through their eyes and, and almost to enter in into an area where we're synergistically uh, brought into their thinking. And I love that. But in the book, um, there was one small passage that shocked me and, and I could feel the suspense as, as I was reading along. And mm-hmm. the, the one, the, the two sentences, um, and I'm going to read them, ladies and gentlemen, and, and it says, entering the basement, Chris looked up here in their beloved gear room. She became a widow. Mm-hmm. What do you feel was the core reason that Keith took his life? It's so hard to answer that question that I have tried very, very, very much as in the course of writing and thinking about this to not speculate on that. And we'll never know, right? Suicide is Mm -hmm. such a difficult, challenging topic for so many people. And there's so many unknowns with that. So many people have speculated that he had some sort of mental health issue, or maybe that the business was struggling, or there were problems in their marriage. So all of these things were potentially factors that led to that point. But in the end, we will really never know. And that's a mystery that we will always have to live with, which was hard for me as a writer. And I think it's hard for the reader to carry. Um, um, so it's definitely, yes, a compelling and and tragic point in the book. But it, it most certainly affected Chris and where, where she goes in her life after that. Yeah. And, and I know that in the book, there was... I think there was uh, three elements right after that that were trying to explain or what people may have told you that why they Mm -hmm. thought Keith had taken his life. But they had only owned Mountain Madness a year before he took his life. That's correct. I mean, just a year. It wasn't like five years of trying to, you know, make the business go. It was just a year. But within that time, as I was as I was reading along, um, I know he was older. You know, you know, he was about 15 or 17 years older than, than Chris. And in a way, it's almost like he felt like he was slowing her down because she was not just an accomplished climber. She had genetics that outdid probably 95 of the men that climbed those mountains. I mean, this woman was like almost superhuman in a way that she climbed and, and, and her thought pattern. But it's almost to me that I felt that as I was reading the story, that Keith's way of letting go of the love of his life was to take his. Yes. I think that's a possible factor. And that's something that I've discussed with many people and many people feel, feel that that was that was a component in this. And again, we'll never know, but I think that's, that's, that's a possibility. Yes. Well, now I want to uh, get into an area of the book that I think um, really describes Chris's drive and passion. Uh, when Christine Boscoff successfully climbed Mount Everest, she penned a final sentence. And as you wrote that, ma- that mountain climbers would never think of writing, but I quote, and Christine wrote, Everest was not a challenge for me. 
And I sat there and I went, Christine, I know exactly what you're talking about. So I understood the quote. I knew as I was reading about her life that Christine was not an adrenaline junkie. And, you know, and a lot of people label mountain climbers as adrenaline junkies. She was not. She was calculated. But I knew that the real challenge was going to be climbing K2. But when she made that statement, that was not just about, you know, a harder mountain to climb. There was a life statement there. So for you, what did you think of her quote when you read it? Well, it definitely took my breath away for sure to read that and to think about all of the implications. And I too thought that that spoke to something much bigger. Uh, it spoke to getting over tragedy in her life, which she had at that point a couple of times. And it spoke to, I think, her belief that there were bigger challenges out there for her, both in the mountains and uh, personally as well. So um, those things resonated with me as I read through that. But, you know, she was, you know, she was the type of person and, and, you know, for the normal reader, I like to read deep, but for the normal reader, I don't, oh man, you know, Christine, she was a sponge. She wanted to learn. And I love the little list that she made like, okay, it's, you know, so she would label it like, this is what the goal is for this year. And, and she would even write down, I want to learn Spanish and I want to learn it fluently. And, and, you know, and, you know, by climbing Everest and being in Tibet and Nepal and all that, she learned even bits and pieces of the language. She knew how to travel and get around, but she always wanted to learn. And, that's where we come into part of the book of wanting, she wanted to expand, but then she met Charlie Fowler. Who was Charlie Fowler? Yes. So she met Charlie uh, around the year 2000, 2001. And Charlie was an iconic rock climber who lived out near Telluride, Colorado. And she got connected with Charlie and they fell in love and had just a wonderful, passionate relationship because they both were kind of cut from the same cloth, I'd say. They both wanted to explore places in the world that were unknown. I think he had that in him first, and he kind of gave that bug to Chris. And both of them uh, were incredibly humble people and didn't seek the spotlight. So they then had this great romance, which I chronicle in the book, that took them all over the world. Yeah, and, and, and it's amazing that um, they were they were really a perfect match. Mm -hmm. You know, I understood the, the relationship between Chris and Keith, but with Chris and Charlie, they were literally mirroring each other, mm -hmm. even down to the way that they lived their life. I mean, the way you described when uh, Charlie's friend walked into his little house, <laughs> the roof is kind of basically barely hanging on. There's no heat. And Charlie's just like, yeah, it's too much trouble to get wood. And, but that same set, that, that very minimal type of living was the same setup that Chris and Keith had in Seattle. And it was, it was really kind of strange that as you were describing Charlie in the book, you could really see where Christine and Charlie, they lived 
for the mountain. Nothing else around that even mattered. I mean, yeah, she had the business, but there was just this focus, this, this drive. And I was trying to literally absorb that thought process that we have one life to live. We don't get a second chance. And to think that you were so passionate about one thing that nothing in the whole world matters, but that, and then once you accomplish it, you keep doing it. And it's like new every time, you know, it's kind of like when she went to, um, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong because I don't know Chinese, <laughs> but the uh, the one mountain near Everest, I think it was what, Chon Oyo? Choi Oyo. She climbed that more than once. And I know the first time she climbed it, she almost left Keith's wedding ring at the top, mm-hmm. but she didn't. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a touching moment. And she climbed it for Keith because that's, that was his favorite mountain. Right, right. And, but... You know, even with her business, you know, she was going back to these places over and over again to lead these expeditions, but every trip is always different. You know, I, I know people who have climbed Everest, um, you know, ladies and gentlemen, if you even think about Everest itself, think about what happened last year in 2019 when 11 people died in the death zone, which, um, Johanna and I both know the death zone is when you get above 20,000 feet and the oxygen level is basically almost non-existent and you usually have to have an oxygen tank to, to survive up there. And, and I remember the photograph. Do you remember that photograph, Johanna, last year when they were showing the line of people yes. trying to get to the summit? Yes. And, amazing picture. Amazing. Picture. Yeah. And, and the, and, and the, and I think that was, wasn't it 2019? That was the largest um, amount of death on the mountain at that time? It's possible. There have been a few other years that have been deadly on Everest. There was an earthquake a few years ago, um, and there have been a few, but but 2019 was a rough one for sure. Yeah, and so when I'm reading your book, that that fo- that famous photograph of 2019 just just hit me. And, and I'm thinking, wow, Christine is doing these expeditions. She's helping other people make their dreams come true, but every climb is different. And when she went to, when her and Charlie attempted K2, I was so disappointed (laughs) and I could feel, I could feel Charlie's anger. Yes. Yeah. Because of of the bureaucratic red tape, so why, why don't you explain to my listeners exactly what happened, so they can understand part of the what mountain climbers have to go through when they go for K two or Everest. Yes, well, there's several different components to these large scale expeditions, and that's one of the things I wanted to kind of talk about in the book because the book really isn't for mountaineers necessarily. It's for armchair climbers, people who are like, (laughs) you know, people who are like me, who I'm not interested in climbing Everest, but I'm happy to climb uh, a little mountain for a couple of hours with my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But I definitely want to read about people who climb Mount Everest, right? Sure. Yeah. So K2 and other large scale expeditions, they require tons of logistical planning And they also require getting permitted. So K2 in particular is very difficult to climb, but also it's very difficult to carry permits for that particular mountain. And climbers and mountaineers have to spend many, many weeks 
doing something called acclimatizing. They go up to a certain level, a certain altitude on the mountain, and they come back down to base camp to get their bodies ready for that final summit push. And when Chris and Charlie were attempting K2 that year, I think it was 2002, they uh, ran into some weather issues such that they really pushed the boundaries of their permit. And in the end, they ran out of time. And so though they both felt they could summit K2, they ran out of time, they lost their permit, or were basically told to go home that their permit was expiring. And that was the end of that. And it was super frustrating for both of them, I think. Yeah. And and I just knew, I, I, I just knew that when if the permit was longer, if they had more time, mm-hmm. they would have literally made it to the summit of K2. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. People always say about how difficult it is to climb Everest, and it can depending on what side you choose. And sometimes Everest can be explained in the modern world. And and this is something else, Johanna, that I, that I loved about the book. You describe a lot of the readers as that you know we would become armchair mountain climbers, and I love the way that you explained uh, certain aspects of the mountain climbing community, what it took to climb things like Everest or K two or other things, and and I understood too some of the frustration that Christine felt internally because some of these expeditions got to the point to where people were just throwing money just to say, Hey, I got, you know, I made it to the top of Everest Mm -hmm. and almost made it sound too easy. Right. Right. And when I look at the photograph of 2019, some people almost look at it like if they were standing in line at Disney world. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that would make her very sad to be honest. What's happened Mm -hmm. to a lot of those uh, mountains over in the Himalaya that they have become uh, a place where if you really want to, get to the top of Mount Everest, not even necessarily because you have a passion, but just because you want to say that you did it, you can do it if you have $80,000. That's, That's right. I have a friend, I have a friend of mine who's climbed the seven summits of the seven continents. Mm. Um, cancer survivor. He did it all with one lung. Oh um, and I asked him one day, I said, how much did it cost to climb Everest? He goes, well, I'm not going to tell you the number, but let's just say you could have bought a BMW. <laughs> so I said, okay. And, uh, but, but I want to go back to K2 real quick because I thought it was so touching in the book that mountaineer Vanessa O'Brien, the first American and British, she had dual citizenship, mm-hmm. who successfully summited K2 in 2017, but she really knew in her heart that Christine did it first. She didn't even, she knew Christine didn't reach the summit, but she knew if it wasn't because of the, the permit limit time and, Mm -hmm. and all that bureaucratic red tape, she knew in her heart that Christine would have been the first American woman to touch the top of K2. Yes. Yes. Vanessa has become a really dear friend of mine. And I love that section in the book where she talks about, reaching the summit just in 2017, I mean, relatively recently, and knowing in her heart that it should have been Chris. And she herself is so humble, which is rare, I think, oftentimes in this sport, that she's still to this day able to say, it really should have been Chris. It should have been Chris. So. Yeah. And I, and that is that, that is a type of humility that we don't see often in mankind anymore. 
uh, you know, people always, you know, people who strive to do great things want to be, you know, for some, they want to be the first to be there. And, um, and some people try, try, and they die trying, but she, she made it. I, I understand how difficult K2 is. I was, when I was talking to, a, to my friend who, who does mountain climbing, I said, are you going to do K2? And he goes, no, <laughs> no way. And I said, why? He goes, he goes out of all the mountains in the world. He goes, it's not the tallest, but it's pretty freaking close mm-hmm. to almost being the size of Everest. He goes, it is the technical challenge and it can take a few years to literally plan and train and pray that um that you will that you will literally make it because ladies and gentlemen uh the stats on k2 alone one out of four climbers will die on k2 that's how dangerous it is um some of them just literally nicknamed it the mountain of death from what i've heard right Right. And so let, let me ask you this now, because the book starts out and, and let me tell you something. This book needs to be a movie. <laughs> Thank you. I think. The, so too. <laughs> and, oh, my gosh. I'm still trying to figure out which actor should play which part. But <laughs> the the when you started the book, you you bring us into this room, into this Chinese police station and the room is crowded. It's packed. There's cigarette smoke and. There's these two duffel bags. One belongs to Christine. One belongs to Charlie. They are locked. They want to know if there's any clues within the bags. So when both Christine Boscoff and Charlie Fowler died in an avalanche um, on that mountain, um, let me, I'll try to pronounce it. Was it Ginyan? Yep, Ginyan, Mount Ginyan. Mount Ginyan in China. Tell us what happened. Well, As we've talked about, they eventually got less interested in these big expeditions, and both of them were very interested in going uh, off the grid a little bit. So they went to a very remote part of Western China and found a mountain that was relatively small by their standards, still 20,000 feet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it was very hard to get to, and they really wanted to summit that particular mountain. So they went off. This was a personal trip. It wasn't business for Chris. And so they didn't leave a lot of detail with people on, uh, you know, where they went. So they went off to climb this mountain. They had a return date set and a friend at the airport, you know, said who was going to be sent to the airport to pick them up. And when that friend arrived at the airport on December 4th, 2006, and Chris and Charlie didn't arrive on their plane, all of these red flags went up and the search and rescue ensued. So I don't want to give too much away. No, no, I don't want you to give too much away because, because I know that, um, I think if I'm I'm trying, I'm trying to remember the chapter, I think it's 19. Mm -hmm. I think it's chapter 19. When, when it really gets into the, the deep explanations as this whole ordeal of trying to find them, Mm -hmm comes into the book now ladies and gentlemen i want you to get a feeling of something because as i say when i read i read deep and sometimes my mindset is a little different than other people um i understand people who desire to do the greatest things in the world i want to do that but i love the fact that when johanna wrote this book she gives great explanations on things that so that way you could really truly understand 
from a human standpoint, almost almost a, a mystical type standpoint, I think I would say. But in the book, and you know, uh, Steve Fisher, he died in an avalanche. If I if I remember correctly, is that is that correct? It was Scott Fisher and Scott Fisher. Died. I mean, Scott. Yeah. Was, yeah, an avalanche, but he was coming down off of Everest. And and in, in your book, there was a statement in the book. You make it to the top of Everest, you're only halfway home because right. now you got to come down. Right. And ladies and gentlemen, climbing Everest may be great going up, but sometimes a lot of people don't make it coming down. This is how dangerous this sport is. But this is a story about Christine, Keith, Charlie, so many other people in this book, but it's written. Christine just has this most incredible story, but both Christine and Charlie die in an avalanche. And when, when you explained it in the book, I was almost, I, I felt like I got robbed. <laughs> and, and, and when I say that there have been some of the most famous sportsmen in the world who have done the most amazing things but the way that their life ends is like, really? That's that's how they that's how it ended, mm. and and it, you feel like you got robbed. I mean, to me, if if she would have died on K two or Everest, that would have been like, okay, I get that, I get that. Right. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand what an avalanche is like. And, and Johanna, I've got to commend you on this. You literally explain the different types of avalanches mm -hmm. because that's important to the story because of this whole subject matter. But there is a section in the book and that Ken Wiley wrote. And, and I'm just, I, I want to read this for my viewers because my, my, my listeners that you, you got to understand how deep life really is. And, and this is what Keith wrote. He said, and this is being, he, he got hit by an avalanche and, and this is what he came out to say. It was a feeling of total dread in which I knew the end result for others would be tragic. I knew my life had changed, and I wasn't certain I was strong enough to deal with it. Though I was only conscious for a few minutes before I passed out, I went through a full-body emotional experience. The avalanche forced me to stop, and in the stillness, everything came to the surface. Every emotion I'd ever felt flooded through me. It was like taking a jigsaw puzzle and throwing the pieces into the air, each piece in laser focus. It was all right there. A profound feeling of humility, deep spirituality, loneliness, regret, fear. Each emotion fleeting, but also completely accessible in a way that I'd never experienced before. I'd been unable in my life to live in the full expression of each emotion. And in the moments of being buried, it was almost a feeling of comfort. I was finally able to recognize what was important and see my own truth. And then 45 minutes later, they dug him out. Mm -hmm. So, Johanna, what truths did you gain from writing Christine Boscoff's story? Oh, what a fabulous question. And I love that such a telling, telling conversation I had with Ken Wiley as he described being buried in an avalanche, beautiful and breathtaking all at the same time, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's a great question. What I learned and what I hope readers take away is the importance of 
looking within myself to find my own truths. I think we as humans can naturally sort of look outside ourselves and look at what everybody else is doing and what everybody else is succeeding with and where people are traveling and what their families look like and how much money they make and use those perceptions of things outside ourselves to kind of figure out where we should be going. And what I have learned from Chris and her journey is to stop doing that. And it's challenging. I'm not going to (laughs) lie to spend a lot of time being authentic and looking at what really makes life beautiful for you. But that's one thing I've taken away from her story. I love that. And I know that um, you had a very interesting conversation with the lead monk at the monastery near the uh, Ginyan Mountain. As you retraced Christine and Charlie's last climb, what did you come away with after that conversation? I did. Yes, I was very lucky in that I was able to retrace those steps and be at that mountain and, and actually hike up to the spot where their bodies had been found. And I did spend some time talking with the Tibetan Buddhist monks who live in a monastery at the base of the mountain. And some of them remembered uh, Chris and Charlie and talked to me about those final days. And I was full of angst when I was talking to the monks because I wanted to really understand, like, why did this happen? They were such good climbers and were there mistakes or what was it? What was it? And I struggled with finding an answer and they helped me understand things from a place of simplicity, which I think is another beautiful lesson to take away. They basically said to me, well, the mountain is powerful and the mountain didn't want them to climb. And so the mountain sent them down. And as the monks said those words to me, they had just a complete look of peace on their faces. And it made me really pause and take a breath and think about those answers in life that we all seek and recognize that sometimes those answers are just right in front of us. And they're just so simple that sometimes we can't see them. I agree. And, and I, and, you know, when I read his reply to you, I went back uh, in the book when the monks would tell other climbers, you know, and then there was, there's, there seems to be this code. Some look at it as a code of respect, a code of honor, that in certain uh, areas of China there where uh, Chris and Charlie lost their life, a lot of those mountains, if they are climbed, a lot of the climbers do not touch the summit out of respect. They just stop short of the summit and then others have bro- broken that code. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, they a lot of and I love the fact that the, a lot of mountain climbing community wants to learn the traditions, the um trying to think of the other word here. Um, the spirituality. Just, this, yeah. It's uh, well, they want to learn that they, they want to, they want to have respect for the mountain. They mm-hmm. want to have respect for the people who live in those areas of Nepal and Tibet and Asia. And I know there's other places in the world as well uh, in which people want to climb and, you know, Americans, we can be very, very brash in a way and push our way to the top. But I love the fact that there were teams that would stop short of the summit. And I thought, wow, you can still say you climbed it. Um, but you can also say that you showed great respect for, for what God has created. And, uh, I just, uh, came away from your book. Uh, wow. What an amazing, uh, it's a literary treasure is what that is. 
Thank you. You, you are know, a super fan. Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm kind of wondering what you're going to write next. But, uh, but, ladies and gentlemen, jo- Johanna Garden's book, Edge of the Map. This is the the, the the technically the life story of Christine Boscoff, one of the premier, if not one of the most premier, mountain climbers in all the world. And um, Again, it should be a movie. <laughs> Thank you. I'm uh, again, I, I was I was moved by so many emotions by reading this book. Um, but you, again, you take the reader, you place them behind the eyes of Christine, Keith, Charlie, so many people. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, you got to live life to the fullest. That's what it's all about. And I think Johanna's written a book that you've got to read. I, I found it compelling. I could not put it down. I say that with absolute sincerity and honest and honesty and johanna where can all of my listeners buy your book oh thank you so much yes it's such a wonderful book for this time right too and the messages that we're all i think needing to hear about resiliency and and passion and finding your your inner peace so uh the book can be found at any of your big online bookstores obviously amazon or barnes and noble online you can find the book you can also get it in local bookstores which i encourage people to do because local bookstores need our love right now amen Uh, yeah yeah and it's also on audio if you have listeners who prefer to listen to books uh on audio when they're driving or walking that's a great way to to get it as well now, now, did you voice the audio or did you have Morgan Freeman do it? <laughs> oh, I wish I had Morgan Freeman do it. <laughs> no, I had a wonderful narrator do it for me. Oh, fantastic. Well, uh, Johanna, thank you so much for giving us your time, uh, sharing us the amazing story. And, and ladies and gentlemen, we just really kind of touched lightly upon Christine Boscoff's story. There is so much more. You've got to read this book. Uh, it's the best 230 pages you will ever have in your hand or on your Kindle. So uh, please go check it out again. Edge of the map. And I and I love the I, I just love the title because that's exactly what Christine Boscoff did. She literally lived to the very edge of the map. Thank you. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to leave you with a quote of my own. So everyone has a mountain in their life. Some look at the mountain to climb like Christine Boscoff did and strive to reach the top. But others have a mountain in their own life that needs to be removed. So I'm going to leave you with that to ponder. So until next time, remember to catch every episode of Life Changing Wellness, just hit subscribe on iTunes or on Spotify. And if I can ask you a favor, please take 30 seconds and rate the show on iTunes. And you know this one deserves... 10 stars because this is an amazing story. So thank you for doing that for me as we want to bring you the best show possible. Just look up Dr. Bond's life-changing wellness on any streaming service. You can learn more about me at drwardbond.com. And again, thank you for listening to life-changing wellness. We are known as a different kind of wellness show. And remember something spectacular happens when you treat your body, your mind, and your soul, right? Have a blessed day, everyone.